Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. I prefer to stick to my guns. We live in a world where most stories are just variants of the same story. Good versus evil, cowboys and Indians, profits and loss. This story has been told a thousand million times. The ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. A tragedy because of the consequences it has on imagination, on our capacity to dream, and on our capacity to relate to one another. The Brilliant Podcast is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories. Ones with complex moral plays, ones that aren't so clearly stories, and ones that are of human size. Our motivation to tell these tales is a desire to see a proliferation of different stories, and not just the simple morality plays of popular culture, or the inverted but otherwise identical stories of the radical Mindy. We believe that a world of free people is possible. We call these people, the people who are in active pursuit of a free world, the brilliant because they're impossible to ignore and yet cannot be seen directly, especially in a world that is dull and gray. Welcome to episode 9 of the Brilliant Podcast. We're starting to get lots of uh, feedback now, so we'll have many things to talk about in that regard. This episode, we're going to talk primarily about the the uh, Crime Think event. Uh, over the weekend, we were privileged to... Uh, get to see them uh, present. I saw them present twice. Uh, and I saw only the second presentation, which was the smaller one at the long haul. And additionally, we got to spend some one-on-one time with some of the presenters and really get an experience for, for what the motivation of the To Change Everything tour was. Uh, of course, we'll, we'll get into specifics um, uh, later in the podcast. Um, what else are we going to do this time around? We're gonna... Yeah, I wanted to follow up on some stuff that we talked about in the past episodes about um, the comments from Lincoln Finch on the subject of anthropology. I want to just touch on the Rojava dispatches that have been posted to A News just, I think, just both of them today, or today and yesterday. And then we were going to get into a broader topic jumping off from the Crime Think presentation in the form of the people. Yeah, uh, so... I guess before we begin, I'm going to give you a correction. Um, this is from episode six, and um, referring to Resonance, the audio project that's uh, fairly new, I had made some uh, editorial comments that were m- misinterpreted as as assigning uh, attributes to to the Resonance Distro's decisions about not posting the identity politics piece from Ajoda. They they emailed and corrected me and said that their disagreement with the piece had to do with the way in which it was inaccurate, sloppy, and a hit job against individuals. Uh, they disagreed with my assertion that they didn't post the identity politics piece because of a political difference. 
they say that they posted the piece, or they didn't post the piece because they believed that it was poorly done. Right. So, so maybe just just to clarify, it wasn't about the direction of the critique. They're not against egoist critiques of identity politics, but rather they felt that it the piece was brought down by the fact that there was some ad hominem that they didn't like. I'm not going to interpret it beyond okay. just right. repeating <laughs> repeating the words. All right. So there's your correction section, and now let's talk about listener feedback. Right. So I did want to follow up on um, Lincoln Finch's comments about anthropology, which I think what was that, maybe two or three episodes ago, that we were talking about that, and his big provocation to us that we kind of brought up but then dropped was that we didn't have the same. We were applying a special epistemic standard to ethnographies so we were treating them with a sort of more doubt than we would other things and you made a you, you did sort of a counter provocation where you said i give approximately the same weight to ethnographies as i do to science fiction stories and then you the, you made a little jab at me about you know maybe you are bothered by epistemic standards i kept thinking about it and i thought well is that true because that's a an I I'm just want to probe you on this. It's a pretty hefty claim to say that you know, evidentiary claims and speculative claims have equal weight to you. So, for instance, I don't feel the same way about these two claims. One being, imagine, speculatively, if there were these insectile creatures that could build giant mounds and live colonially, and they communicate through volatile chemicals, and, oh my God, wouldn't that be crazy? And then the same... Or do you give the, the same weight to that as you do to, I actually saw these things, these insectile creatures, and I was studying them. They build 30-foot mounds out of their feces that have passive air conditioning. They digest their food with an external stomach in the form of a fungus that exists in this nest. So in the one case, we are imagining insectile creatures, and in the other case, we're observing creatures that are actually termites, right? And so do you give the same weight to those two claims? Because to say I, I put science fiction on a par with ethnography is to say I give equal weight to speculation as I do to empiricism, which is not to say that the empiricism might be fraught with all kinds of observer bias or that uh, the act of observation is changing what is observed and so we can't come away thinking that this is how things are. Well, I, I think to begin with, I, I don't think that I use the language that you're assigning to me, that I did not say that I I see these uh, um ethnographies as in an equal competition to science fiction. Mm -hmm. I, believe, I believe that what I was saying generally was that um, uh, was that there, there are different systems that one can use to mm -hmm. sort of explain reality to, mm -hmm. to themselves. And, and the third one that I mentioned, which I probably is the most popular uh, way to understand the world that one lives in, is the Bible. Oh, right, yeah. And and so, in other words, I, I did not say that there are three options, and I, I view them all equally. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that faith, reason, and imagination, mm -hmm. um, perhaps you could make some sort of value of, of that all three of them are necessary to make a complete and interesting person. Mm -hmm. So, um, and probably the times in which they are differently important has to do with context. Mm -hmm. And so, so for me, my issue with anthropology, by and large, is that in talking about a radical future, 
an AP perspective or an anthropologically placed perspective begins a conversation about a post-ATR universe with with a priori assumptions Mm -hmm. about what utopia looks like. Mm And so similarly, I would say about science fiction, that science fiction begins a conversation about a different world with mm-hmm. a priori. And, and so for me, my life goal has a lot more, I live a lot more in the a priori, like why are these the assumptions that are being made and how do we tease out how, what, what the consequences are to those, to those uh, first, first uh, principles? Mm-hmm. That to me is much more the interesting conversation. For other people, obviously, they're much more concerned with with a future utopia. They're not going to use that word. They're going to they're going to say a future mm-hmm. that that has or an orientation, a world we want to live in, a world we want to live in. Yeah. And so, for those people, they're going to begin with very different assumptions than I, than I do, or very different motivations. Mm-hmm. So, so my goal was entirely to sort of talk about these as being different types of systems that people use to do, to do that sort of future building. I'm much more concerned with the fact that, like, there's a genealogy here. Let's tease through the genealogy and talk bluntly about what the consequences of the different uh, uh, perspectives are. So, for instance, we don't spend a lot of time in this podcast or in my life talking about libertarians who, who use the book The Fountainhead to understand the entire world. But there are a lot of people who do that. Mm-hmm. And, and and I would call that a science fiction type yeah, totally. Type orientation. Yeah, romantic or something. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously there are just as many people who used to do it with a Stranger in a Strange Land mm-hmm. or maybe even Dune. Mm-hmm. And um and so so for me my project is to interrogate that genealogy, a genealogy that I can touch, which is a little different than like a Foucaultian experience uh uh pursuit that would be talking about genealogies that I feel are too abstract for me to understand. Mm-hmm. So for, for me, the goal within the anarchist context or with a political context is to say, like, when I am in a room and I'm hearing someone talk about a worldview that they have clearly, like, they know what the world is and they're, and they're explaining it to me. For me, my experience is like, wait, wait, how do I understand what it is that they're talking about within the context that they're pretending is the assumption or is, is the unstated assumption yeah the hidden premise yeah. yeah yeah sure and the reason i wanted to follow up on this was that i i think um we at the beginning we were responding to to these uh feedback in a, a more serious way and then it sort of petered out at the end when i think there was a bit more to pull out and i didn't want to come away with this kind of position that sounded ultra relativistic of just well any claim is as good as any other claim, and you know who really knows how things are. And even though I have personally an extremely skeptical orientation in general, I do give different weight to evidentiary claims versus speculative claims, even though I think both can be useful and both have their place in an anarchist analysis. And so, yeah. but just to just to restate what I'm saying as simple as possible, mm-hmm. or as simply as possible. The, the di- the difference is that my orientation is not towards future tracking. Mm-hmm. Sure, and and so that means that whether it's evidentiary or epistemological or fantastical, that that these things are appropriate in my life today, not mm-hmm. just in a future life. Mm-hmm. And and to be to be blunt about it, in my daily life, I am a scientist. Mm-hmm. I work in technical field. I think very rigorously using traditional logical schemes, but I don't like to pollute like uh, that with what it is that I do when I'm thinking about um, 
the relationships I want to have with other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so did you want to touch on the Rojava thing? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I, I was just very much surprised and interested to see that uh, there's a longtime anarchist who has <laughs> really gone for it and is is now in Rojava and it, and it appears to be go- going there for sort of journalistic reasons. And I'll be really curious to come to hear what this person has to say because maybe they can put another piece of the puzzle together. This having been a hot topic for anarchists for some time, I've heard just claims all over the place. Uh, of course, we're hearing this idea that Oshalon is very much influenced by Bookchin, which leads me to wonder whether the um, author's statement of... Uh, at one point, they say something about having crossed into... or having thought to themselves, I stand on ground that has no state, and having been very moved by this. And though I can imagine that as a very moving experience, I'm also wondering, well, depending on the degree to which... Uh, these people could be justifiably called Bookchinists. I don't know that a democracy could really be called a, a stateless situation, but uh, I would love to, or I'm very curious to see where this goes, because I've heard claims so strange as the, that supposedly one of the war cries that is over there is death to Gilgamesh. Which, Fuck. Which is That's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, amazing if it's true, in that it, it really means that... Um, I mean, to me, that's way beyond Bookchin to say something like death to Gilgamesh <laughs> yeah. is about as anti-civilization as you can get, yeah. given that arguably the first civilized literature to exist was the story of Gilgamesh, who, of course, went, uh, you know, his first acts were to cut down the trees and build the city and then start being basically horrible to um, to various young people in his society, which there's this whole implied sexual dominance thing that gets creepy as fuck. And it, I, if that's what's being said, I, I would love to hear it. And... Um, and just Dispatch 2 just went up today on a News. I haven't even had a chance to look at it, but yeah. Curious to see what happens. Yeah, I, I think that uh, obviously this person is not the first person to visit um, uh, that part of the world sure. dur- during this moment. They are um, uh, they're a known person who, who is writing under a pseudonym while they're there because they're concerned about border issues. And so uh, I assume that they'll they'll do a follow up at the end of this series, and I'm sure that we'll probably talk about this next week when there's when there's I think they're going to do a dispatch every day. Yeah, which that's what they said, which is awesome. And uh, so I'm sure we'll talk about this again next week. So I, I won't go too much into uh, uh, conversations about whether this is the mm-hmm. the Spanish Civil War of our era. But I will say that I did hear that uh, another person who went over there came back pretty traumatized because they had seen incredible oh, wow. violence. Mm-hmm. I mean they. Uh, they went into a war zone and they they saw some war, mm-hmm. and so in in that way, it's it's extremely difficult for me to talk about what does it look like to to be involved in a stateless yeah. campaign yeah. in in the context where you're literally talking about American and Russian bombs falling and trying to hit ISIS maybe 
uh, when they're not trying to hit CIA assets. Right. I mean, talk about a terrain of where, where the actors are very large and we are just little teeny mice sure. dodging um, giants' toes. Sure. Yeah, and um, part of the reason I'm excited about this is that this person has a very anti-civ orientation, so we'll get that kind of gaze yes, on it. we definitely would not get from other people. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about Krentik? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You saw the first presentation, so you might be able to fill in some details that I can't. What I'm when I'm making references to comments I heard, this was only the second presentation, which was smaller, more discussion oriented, and my f the first sort of surprise I had was just from the way that the discussion has been advertised and framed was that I was really expecting it to be more about the text, and I came with the intention of talking about the text. And so, in a sense, I was disappointed to not be able to get into that and not be able to have the, the kinds of questions answered that I would have liked to have had. But instead, it was more focused on the presenters each giving some stories about the places that they were from, which variously were Brazil, the Czech Republic, Slovenia, and the U.S. And um, something I was struck by was a kind of, to me, basic contradiction that was present across everything that was said. Everyone who was there spoke, who spoke about the left made it very clear that they considered themselves anti-left. And other than that, or anyone who was silent about it didn't explicitly align themselves with the left and didn't disagree with what was being said. So the overall impression was that this group is anti-left. They also expressed, when they spoke to it, a serious allergy to the idea that we were in some sort of global struggle or that struggles were somehow implicitly or subconsciously linked or that there was this kind of anarchist movement there was even a specific question to the effect of do you consider us to be in a global anarchist movement and everyone said absolutely no at the same time what was talked about as issues and what was talked about as the role of anarchists was that they saw a general rise in what they were calling fascism the people in the czech republic and slovenia specifically said there are fascists and what is happening in your country is also fascism, even if you don't see it as such. And with reference to the United States, they were speaking about the southern border. They were speaking about um, their reception as foreigners and how unwelcome foreigners were, how difficult it was to travel, how limited their stay was. And also the presence of certain groups like the Oath Keepers, who are the sort of far-right-wing, constitutionalist, uh, quasi-militia. They refuse to identify themselves as militia. They've been called that. And so the role of anarchists for them was to be part of uprisings and specifically to not allow any kind of vacuum that would allow these fascists to seek power. And so there was this idea of anarchists as opening up space, anarchists as taking 
space in political vacuums in order to steer things away from fascism. Um, anarchists becoming involved in helping global refugees from war zones in North Africa or the Middle East. Um, the proposal was even made that anarchists in this country ought to be helping people emigrating from Mexico. Someone followed up by saying that is happening with groups like No More Deaths. So to me, it seems that there was a tension between this anti-left, anti-global stance on the one hand, and the suggested role of anarchists as steering revolutions, inserting themselves into ruptures, providing social services where society fails. To me, this seems still very much to be of the left idea that anarchists should be managing the world, but better, inserting themselves into global events, having a global mindset. Why didn't you ask that question? <laughs> that's it. That's, uh, there, there wasn't quite the opening for it that I wanted to. I had it in my head for some time and then sort of moved away from it. And then, uh, to be honest, the presentation ended earlier than I thought it was going to. And It was, al it was almost three hours. Yeah. I, my sense of time, I just was existing in such an unalienated state during that. That's, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's true. I should have asked this. Yeah, I should have asked this question. I, I mean, I, I would love to hear their answer, especially mm. to, the, to, the, to the answer of the sort of hubris of the anarchist. I, um, I mean, I assume that they'd sort of all wiggle out of it and say, you know, I'm not saying this from my perspective, I'm saying this in general, or, or that, you know, yeah. the need is there. Well, yeah, I was actually expecting some kind of answer like, well, if, if we don't do this, then the fascists are going to. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of, it's, it's very easy to frame it in a, there is no alternative way. And then also I was expecting maybe a certain amount of moral horror of what you just want us to do nothing while all of these refugees are coming here and these people are desperate. There's a real need here. We can objectively say that we're helping X number of people because that's what happened when we opened up the border and they were saying something. But there was a claim of a rather large number of refugees who were able to enter um, because of specifically anarchist acts. And so I think that I mean, there are a lot of ways out of that. But... Did, did you ever watch the cartoon The Justice League? Yeah. So one of the striking things for me about The Justice League that I'm reminded about with anarchists all the time is that in The Justice League, usually the the, the, the setup was always that an evildoer sort of was hatching a plan that, that would involve, you know, decimations of thousands right. and millions of people, and they could sort of use the entire toolbox to, to enact their plans. But The Justice League only won... If at the end of the episode the bad person was behind bars, going, "Oh, yeah. you foiled my plan," right. and um, and so it remind what what you're presenting sort of reminds me a little bit of like what the Justice League has to do. They they have to recognize evil, mm -hmm. but they have a very specific part of the toolbox that they get to use. And and my my guess is that the strongest argument that these people would would make was that they just want to open up the entire toolbox. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that was part of the thing. Was, there was some rhetoric that I had a hard time dissecting, honestly. Like, like saying, one of, the, the phrase opening up space came up numerous times. Mm -hmm. And I, I honestly don't really know what that means. And it, it's well, sort actually, of let, like a, let me give you a okay. little sidebar on that. Okay. When, the, when the Greeks came to the U.S. in 2009, 2010, after, um, after the book came out, uh, we are, I can't remember, the Void Network book. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they actually introduced the U.S. to this idea of anarchist space and to the language around it. And part of the part of the language and how they use the term space is to, is a is a, as a differentiation from what we call the milieu. Mm, okay. So whereas the milieu sort of implies that you and I know each other, whether we do or not, the space represents that just the phenomena that we all are working in the same terrain. So, so for instance, in the Bay Area context, there's tons of people who are not in the milieu, but mm-hmm. who are in the space. And I was very friendly to this as, as an idea, but but let, let's go a little further. There's tons of people who are not anarchist political actors, mm-hmm. but who absolutely participate in our dialogue and that these are people in the NGO world sure maybe grumpy NGO people but they're also anti-state commies sure and so uh, for instance we have some people in the bay who absolutely are committed to the idea that they're not part of the milieu yeah but they're absolutely so part <clears throat> of the space we space. still talk okay. about them yeah okay but then <laughs> still that leaves me wondering what does it mean to open up space does it mean to build infrastructure to create organizations to introduce people to each other because i i feel like it's one of those sort of weasel words where you say opening up space oh that's a good thing i mean who would be against opening up space right do you want to close space but it when people talk to me about that i think okay i have no idea what that actually means as you you as a person going throughout your day what your activities are so but i i think that occupy is a very good example of what the what the effort looks like sure so to be uncritical about the General Assembly, I would say the General Assembly was, a, fanta- up space. was a fantastic sure. way to hear what was on people's minds without an executive function. Sure. Um, you know, it's difficult in the American context to talk about building infrastructure because building infrastructure means money. Mm-hmm. In, the, in other words, in the European context, when you're talking about squats, what you're talking when you're talking about opening up space, you're talking about opening up the use of the squats by a a broader audience. Sure. But that's complicated because the audience that lives in squats needs those squats. Right. So so their complication lives there, whereas our complication lives in the fact that paying rent Mm -hmm. is an incredibly onerous task that usually involves, (laughs) uh, you know, money. Doing things you don't want to do for (laughs) hours and hours. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, I guess I'm I'm just a little friendlier to, to, to this in general. Yeah, I mean, I'm not unfriendly to it. I just honestly didn't know what it meant when it was being said. Yeah, but I, I think that this question about how, like, the, uh, they, the speakers pr- attempted to be critical about democracy. Yes. But there is somewhere in this opening up space that is a similar conversation to what does democracy look like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a with a certain view of what democracy looks like, of course it looks like having strangers feel comfortable in your space. Mm-hmm. But then it's no longer your space, or right. very likely it's no longer your space. Mm-hmm. It's no longer a space where Stirner is going to be, you know, greeted with cheers and not jeers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after this, this a lot of rhetoric about the role of the anarchists being a rather large one, somewhat contradictorily, they were asked at the end by, I think it was actually the last question, are you optimistic or mm-hmm. pessimistic was the thrust of the question not verbatim and their answers were not so much optimistic and could i think in some ways be called very pessimistic but defiant so one of the speakers dismissed the question as irrelevant and saying i, I don't even want to think about am i hopeful or not i just want to be involved in day-to-day activities 
two were quite explicitly pessimistic, except saying that they believed in the people that they cared about and knew that they were going to face these things together. And a fourth one very clearly framed himself as not optimistic, but said, I'm determined to die fighting. And it just struck me as an odd juxtaposition, especially there's there's almost sort of Camus feel to it of the struggle must be enough to fill your hearts, even if you think that this, the struggle can't go anywhere. And so I wonder about the mindset that puts those things side by side, that the anarchist is a big actor in the world and can really turn the world through activity, and yet I'm not optimistic. Well, it's an incredibly ambitious statement to say that anarchism is an actor in the world and we are the partisans of that activity. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, many of us are... I, I mean, I would say that I... Because I've devoted so much of my life to anarchist activity, the idea that anarchism is, is a small little pipsqueak on the stage and that it is not, of no concern to to daily life is is a sad thought. Mm-hmm. So, so on that level, I totally agree with them. Mm-hmm. But of course absolutely disagree with the premise of the question. I, I would turn that question on its head right away because I, I think that the that the plausibility of uh, of the end of, a, of an activity in other words, the way in which people connect activity to results mm-hmm. for me is deeply flawed mm-hmm. and and speaks to sort of what I don't like about activism and what I don't like about activists mm-hmm. is, is, you know, like the, um, I, I mean, I, I always talk about the causal chain that, you know, if we, like in different revolutionary strategies, the causal chain looks different, but it more or less boils down to if we do this long enough, we will achieve results that will allow us to do bigger things right. in the future. And once those those things that we build slowly but surely via the causal chain of activities that, you know, that, that first involve you handing a stranger to change everything and later on involves listening to the podcast with them and explaining to them what they don't understand. You know, the education is sort of a, the core of the, of the causal chain. And, um, and so uh, as someone who sort of doesn't think it works like that, any part of it, the, the conversation about hope has to do with, it's really a conversation about motivation. And that's a that's a very personal question. Mm-hmm. That's extremely hard to answer in front of a group of people, yeah. of strangers. Yeah, I actually thought they did a very good job of answering what I thought was a very difficult and personal question, and they were all just speaking off the cuff. And but they didn't make it personal. They sort of they made it they made it like I am a warrior, therefore I fight. I mean, there's talk about friends, people I care about, yeah, you know, and even that's not very personal. It's in the so abstract, I'm, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sure, friends in the abstract, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the idea that, I mean, to me, anarchism is much more a life orientation than it is about some kind of idea of uh, of, of winning or losing. Um, I mean, and which is why I wanted to segue into what is the role of anarchists if it is not to, to do this sort of inserting yourself into the ruptures and solving societal problems better than society does because then we demonstrate that anarchism is actually the superior society. And you spoke in your um, interview with the Haas' journal that one of the roles you saw was building infrastructure, which you mm-hmm. characterized as slow and unsexy work. And so when you talk about building infrastructure, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. 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 
world. Just me and you. I'm always here for you. And, and and how would you contrast? Because that could be, the causal chain that you characterize could be very much applied to. I mean, to build this infrastructure, therefore spread the message. Therefore, in three generations, there are going to be ten times as many anarchists. Right? It's very easy to have that fall into the same kind of mindset. And why do you distinguish it from that mindset? Um, I guess I I, I want to differentiate between uh, the work. Mm-hmm. And the motivation. Mm-hmm. So, so the actual answer to your question, why infrastructure, why have I made the choices that I've made, is because I am, I gravitate towards and perhaps have a talent for the work, mm-hmm. the work itself. In other words, um, the, the 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 late nights that I sit here tapping away um, <laughs> actually give me a, a type of peace. Uh-huh. And and I find that, yeah, I find it satisfying. So to to put the whole conversation in a different way, probably not in the way that you oriented, and we can go philosophical later. About sixteen years ago, I purchased a machine and put it in a data center. So I installed a server sixteen years ago, and I barely knew what to do with it at that point, but I knew that I wanted to quote-unquote, build infrastructure for my friends, for projects that I liked. So so the language that, that was used to talk about it then was I wanted to host some websites. Right. And five years later, I'd sort of figured out enough that I that shit wasn't fucked up all the time. Mm-hmm. And so then I sort of started to offer my services to people who were near strangers, people who did projects that I supported, but who otherwise I did not necessarily know or or whatever, and then ten years after that, uh, you know, I I have built infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So partially, what that has looked like was not just the the late nights, but was also figuring out some things that needed to be done. So, as an example, prior to me building infrastructure, there were quite a few anarchist archives around, but mostly they were unkempt monsters. Mm-hmm. They were driven by one person, and they and they more or less had an orientation that perhaps worked for that person for like a 6 to 12 month period of time but then they sort of neglected it or abandoned it mm-hmm. so this to me seemed like a project that needed to be done meaning that i felt like for anarchists to 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 use texts in a more effective and interesting way um both in the in the short term in terms of creating visit, uh nice pdfs that they could make as posters or or whatever and then also in a more long term sense of, of building people's knowledge beyond 101 uh, type type knowledge that, that there was the need for a consistent overtime archive of um, uh, of anarchist material that was going to begin by collecting the material that already existed but that, that but that there was a huge process to turn it into something that looked more like a, a, a vibrant active library so that library now exists, right? It's called the Anarchist Library. It's at a website called theanarchistlibrary.org. And there are thousands and thousands of people who have used this as a tool to extend their, their sense of what it means to be an anarchist, the, a sense of, of all the different options and opinions that are out there within the anarchist world. And that project has a value in and of itself, but one of those values is that it's provided me more people to talk to Right. Another value is that it's been a functioning anarchist organization that's done all the work. 
although you know with some decisions I agree with and some I disagree with and and more importantly it is a perfect example of infrastructure that did not exist prior to sort of having an energy for it but will continue to exist possibly forever because of some decisions we've made about openness and all the rest so what I get out of that whole story is that nowhere in there was there even really the mention of what that looks like in the long term or in the arc of history or on the Manichaean battlefield or anything like that and it was described very much in personal terms sure but but I mean to the extent I'm saying in contrast to yeah in contrast to said right for sure for sure I mean, perhaps everybody, when we storm the, the gates of Washington, D.C., perhaps everybody will have a CD-ROM in their back pocket of the Anarchist the Library, Anarchist but then nobody will have a CD-ROM player to use it. So. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's, to me, uh, you know, um, having been only involved in these kinds of projects for a, a very short time, to me it's it, it really has been about the personal human scale and dissolving that idea of maybe what could be called selfishness versus altruism or the big picture versus the personal sphere and to dissolve those dichotomies as much as possible and have anarchism mean living the life the best you can with the people that you love, which to me means propagating these ideas with media, getting to have lots of interesting conversations with people that I otherwise would have no way of knowing. Um, and ultimately in the, the longer term working toward recreating a human habitat and non-human habitat, doing a land project and doing whatever <coughs> doing whatever is necessary to engage with the economy and the state as little as possible, unless doing so means doing it on your own terms, which it usually doesn't. And yeah, I guess orientation more toward the human scale, to use your phrase. Yeah, I, I mean, my only concern about that, I, for me, that's not enough. Uh-huh. And so... So I do projects. Well, yeah, but I'm saying that those projects don't have to be uh, these self-alienated ideas of this is what is good on the Manichaean battlefield versus this no, but, is what is good in no, my life. But nobody's going to agree with that language. Why? Because they're 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 going to say that they have great relationships and and you know they get all the things satisfied that you do with your personal project. They they get satisfied with social projects. I mean the. the I don't think it. I don't think of media as being a non-social project. Right. Well, okay. I mean, you're making a a defense of media projects, but you can imagine that in three years you probably will not be that involved in external media projects if you're homesteading from a culture. Take that as a challenge. Okay. No, it's it's a fair. <laughs> it's fair. You know, um, the the mythical place called Southern Oregon is fairly inf- uh, infamous in how little it uh, attempts to communicate to the outside world. That's interesting. I didn't know that. And it used to be for many years that... Same- and you're saying that is characterized by a lot of these homesteading, yeah, back-to-the-land sure. anarchist things. And um, so then the gaze turns inward. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are many other examples. Like, mm. there are a lot of anarchists in Rust Belt towns, Philadelphia, Detroit, St. Louis being three of them. By and large, in those towns, the proportion of anarchists who own property is much higher than it is in other places because the property is so cheap. cheap. Yeah. And those communities are also, by and large, uh, non-communicative to the outside world. <laughs> there are not 
media projects based in Philly, uh, there was a, a, a paper called The Defenestrator that only rarely came out <laughs> um, uh, and, and almost never, yeah, and, and never reached the West Coast. Uh, the only reason I ever saw it for years and years is, was because I did reviews. Yeah. That's, yeah, that is a lot of evidence for the claim that to, once you withdraw and try to do some sort of back-to-land thing, that Healthy. then you become complacent. Oh. No, I would okay. put it differently. I would put it that, like, uh, doing as many projects as some people do is it's, not healthy. Uh, human, healthy human in the in the monkey yeah. uh, sense of the word, and that instead, um, doing ha- having a life for you, sort of work, work a full time job, and you know do projects like this all the time is objectively unhealthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not to brag. Some of us get so caught up in Dunbar's number that we forget about the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can I can imagine uh, uh, living a life where I have no external pings you know no no ex- like that there, well, there's no daily interest in my engagement mm-hmm. but that seems very far away from the life that I live now mm-hmm. shall we move on to the people sure did you have any closing comments about that okay i mean we're we're really the whole thing is about the people this episode is as largely the show is about the people Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Onward. So who are the people? Uh, the people, I would say, in the way that I usually hear them discussed, are the only authentic human beings, the repositories of value. They're not like the ruling elites. They're not like the the revolutionaries. They're the salt of the earth. Whatever apparent inadequacies they have are explicable in terms of cultural impositions on them from the non-people. They are the creators and the consumers of the only authentic culture. They're not like the college-educated or the middle class. They're not the transplants. They're not the wealthy. They make, they consume authentic culture. Sometimes they're the revolutionary subject, which might sound like an antiquated, falsified idea from the mid-1800s, but it has been revived. We now have Black Lives Matter. The people are back. They, the people are inherently possessed of various more or less latent radical ideas. They're possessed of a more or less united opinion. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is... This, I, I guess this sounds like one of the building blocks that one would use to critique the left. Yes. That the left is absolutely fascinated and obsessed with the people. Yes. And so this whole framing I haven't thought about in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think about the people, perhaps to my detriment. Because of your debt, or to your detriment, because? Because a 20 year time frame for me is about the same time period where I decided that, that I was not going to associate with people outside of the anarchist space. Mm. And so that mean, meant that I could hang out with, you know, punks and hipsters on occasion, but only to the extent to which they were part of the anarchist space. And so it means that, like, I maybe more than most am able to talk to total strangers on the street, 
but I don't have relationships with them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, t- just to make some initial observations and, and stop doing my sarcastic rant, I clearly I see that the whole idea as being an implicitly condescending one because one places oneself somehow outside of the people, and so the people are this massified entity that one can speak to and pull at with various strings, but one is not a part of, and so one simultaneously separates oneself from something and yet says that that thing is the only authentic, true, and real human being. So what does that say about oneself? And obviously there's an incredible monolithization of human beings, and I've found nothing quite so appallingly racist and crudely leftist in the past year than this idea that the anarchists should be following black leadership. It's just absolutely disgusting to me, as I talked about a few times on Free Radical Radio, and maybe to move this in a more specific direction to you, you um, and your cohorts at LBC put out a book called Nihilist Communism that very much speaks to this idea. And you, again, in the Hostess interview, mentioned that that has informed your thinking quite a bit and that you placed yourself in between that and willful disobedience. And that had a good good deal to say about the people, so I didn't know if you wanted to speak to that at all. No, I mean, mostly the premise of NICOM is exactly what it is that you're saying. All, with the added sort of insult... I, I haven't read Nikon, so... <laughs> yeah. so. Uh, with the added insult that it basically claims that people who do the, the, the little linguistic term that you're, you're pointing to, <laughs> that those people um, are not revolutionaries, but instead, right, they are not actually doing... Capable of doing They're the not capable of, nor are they... Are they uh, if you look at their activities, would those activities be described, you know, even in, in, in prepubescent form as... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as revolutionary activities. Yeah. Uh, so the term that, that is coined in Nikon is called pro-revolutionaries. That's basically the equivalent of like a cheerleader or like a fan. And um, and I think I really like that because it's extremely cruel towards yeah, a, lot, a large set of people who more or less dress up as revolutionaries for the weekends, you know, when they go to the punk show or, or to the demo, but in fact are just fans of revolutionaries, usually of the past, usually of some exotic culture that is not their own. And 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 just to follow up on the one point that you made that I, I react to quite strongly, I, uh, separate from my own characteristics, I don't expose myself to phenomena like, like people saying that we should follow the leadership of Black Lives Matter. And... I guess it's sort of... Not even that, though, because that actually is a more specific claim because you're referring at least to an organization. Yeah. But the, the slogan was just to follow black leadership. Right. Well, again, the, the point is is that if you don't put yourself into the rooms where people say outrageous, obnoxious shit like that... You get to have lower blood pressure. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> I mean, sometimes recognizing the, the tenor of a, of a particular room um, is, is pretty important. That said, there is a room that I can imagine being in where I could hear people talk about questions of leadership, and I'd be open to hearing them, but they wouldn't sort of be the the finger wagging white people should do this uh, that that you're that you're talking about. They but but this question of leadership 
does have a pedigree, does have some interesting aspects to it that we tend not that we tend to ignore if we just take fixed anarchist ideological positions. That leadership equals authority. That the two are synonymous. Something like that, yeah. I I I'd go further than that, but yeah. Sometimes people don't use our jargon. Yeah. Okay. You're doing a teaser. Maybe we can do this on a different episode. No, there, there's no teaser. I, I, I mean, some something. You're, you're pointing at something that you think, but you're not. You're, you're just saying that you're. You're just repeating thing. yourself. It, it's it's not cryptic to say that leadership means something different for di- for for a person who lives a different world in a world different world than I do. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that was. Uh, that we wished within the context of the crime thing tour was that we would talk about the text a little bit They, they, you know, they published 100,000 copies of this document and then didn't want to talk about it during a tour with the same name as the, as the document. And it's yeah. not that they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't say overtly, don't talk about it. But they, they more or less created a situation where what they wanted to talk about was a set of international events with a group of strangers to the U.S. context while with, with, with the sort of... The reason we all came in the room was because of a document. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps not. I mean, I think that that perhaps crime think would would uh, would like to believe that that the situation they uh, energized was different than the one that I just stated. But for us, as a as a reading group, it was really frustrating to not get to talk about the thing that we yeah that that we knew that they did when the the tour and the text had the same name. Yes. And so part of the background here is that it came out during the presentations that and our conversations outside of those that, in fact, the various um, folks who had come from different countries who were working with CrimeThink to produce and disseminate this text had actually changed the text in some significant ways for their particular locales, seemingly to make it more specific to their locations. And it was never exactly clear to us as the audience to what extent that was changed and I actually don't know that it was completely clear to crime think to what extent the texts had been changed, and so that came as something of a surprise, and uh, you know, as I said, left me feeling a bit dislocated. Or to put it a little differently, there are micropolitics inside of crime thinks, sure. especially their international publishing gaze, that are fucking interesting, and um, and it basically requires someone who's from the outside who's who sort of is willing to not stay on the crime think page to even have this conversation in the, in the first place or to even talk about it or to even probe the exactitudes of, of this, uh, this specific information. And for me, for many years, I've, I've had a lot of problems with the sort of crime think branding project. Um, I think that crime think should have dismantled uh, uh, towards the end of their post-evasion era if they wanted to change their politics. And um, because they didn't, they basically have have exacted this very uh, puzzling political exercise of transforming an organization that had certain identifiers um, 
to have a totally different political project than they had prior. Actually, I think that that was really put well by one of the presenters at the um, at the long haul event, where they basically said, in the past, we were concerned sort of with um, the details and the and the specifics of our of our daily lives, and now we have a different interest that's much more of a mass. It's the humanist societal turn, and if I were to characterize the the sort of phantom of the people, I would say it's the misbegotten child of humanism in society, mm-hmm. because you take the idea that humans are essentially good, what humans say is good is in fact good, and to the extent that they err, it's due to some sort of lack of knowledge, and with increased knowledge, humans will improve morally and politically, and the, what the radical is doing is inserting themselves in order to make that happen. And then at the same time, you have the influence of society, which says basically we have to live in mass, and the way to bind ourselves together is to have shared cultural values, and then to radicalize that is to just say, we need to change what those cultural values are, and then the two go together, and you have the people. The the document itself, of course, sort of has a lot of assumptions along these sort of lines. Um, uh, so, for instance, one of the um, spreads, start by seeking power, not authority. And then it says... Authority over others, on the other hand, usurps their power, and what you take from them, others will take from you. Authority is always derived from above. The soldier obeys the general who answers to the president who derives his authority from the constitution. The priest answers to the bishop and the bishop to the pope, the pope to scripture which derives its authority from God. The employee answers to the owner who serves the customer whose authority is derived from the dollar. The police executes the warrant signed by the magistrate who derives authority from the law. And clearly, like, this is a a type of Anarchist 101 statement. Yeah. But it feels to me like this is the weakest part of anarchism. Because most people do not actually experience themselves dealing with anyone other than the soldier, the priest, the employee, and the police officer. And mostly, not even those, but just other well i mean maybe the employee and the i think the ties that bind are i mean so they're part of what they're doing here is actually doing this like almost quasi sterner thing to say ultimately we're just being ruled by these abstract concepts look it's so silly when you look at it but i think that your observation is right on because most of what happens is just the kind of uh, what sikolsky says this sort of mutual acquiescence of going through your daily life, which is largely predicated on routine. You see a lot of the same people, and there are these shared expectations about how behavior is going to happen. And, the, and you know, in the, in the context of talking about people, it's very hard for me to not see the ways in which struggle and the streets are defined that aren't just as spectacularized as the relationships that are embodied in this phrase that I just read. In other words... The idea of seeing that activity that happens on the streets is actually how society changes and functions and ebbs and flows in terms of what orders uh, the dominant order is is concerned with. This, to me, feels like it, it, it embeds these sort of, I'll call them existential leaps of faith uh, around um, uh, how people actually operate. and so That the activity in the streets is more real. Absolutely. than the daily activity. Yeah, for sure. And and that, you know, all the people who sort of agree with the protest have all of a sudden found their voice mm-hmm. and um, and 
then lose it somehow at the end of the evening. But um, uh, so I guess when we talk about the people as a category of discussion for this podcast, what we're talking about is the abstraction that absolutely disempowers the people that it's talking about. But another way to sort of go at all this is to is to sort of say that, from my perspective, um, you know, everyone's watched a movie that at the heart of it is about an, an individual person resisting authoritarian orders. And so um, this document, to, to, to change everything, and the premise of talking about anarchists as political subjects in the in the struggleismo sense of the word, um, all pretend like people don't have opinions or that people don't have resistances that are natural and built in and, and aren't sort of synthetic, political, and um, spiritually oriented towards the, the divine. And so for, for me... Yeah, I, I guess that's all I have to say about the people is that, is that it feels like an unfair category to put people into. Because you're saying pr- the way that resistance happens is not in this massified way where suddenly cultural values, radical cultural values are shared by some subset of society called the people that then act in concert, but rather that people have their sort of everyday quotidian resistance that just comes from individual personalities and manifests itself in individual ways? So. I think that that's fair. I, I think that there's a Stalin-esque rewrite of what what um, political resistance looks like or what resistance looks like that, uh, in this case, valorizes the one. In other words, valorizes resistance if it looks like dressing in black and walking down um, big boulevards and minimizes others that look like I fucking hate my boss. There's no way in hell I'm going to do what it is that they're telling me to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so the reply would be, that's great, but that's the sort of um, pre-actualized germ of resistance that, in fact, is the mark of the people who are objectively re- revolutionary and know that something's wrong, but they haven't been tapped into yet, right? I find it hard to believe someone would say that, but it's, it is possible. No, but that's... No, I've I've heard exactly those kinds of arguments. That there's something like it, uh, I think in here something. Or wait, am I confusing something? But people definitely make these statements like everyone hates their boss and knows that they could be doing their job better than the boss, and that the boss just gets in the way. We all know this, and that just needs to be tapped into, and people need to be radicalized by saying, "Hey, these sentiments that you have are actually the just, the real, and the true." I mean, they wouldn't put it that way, but <laughs> and what we all need to do is just get together and talk about this and then act en masse, right? I don't Perhaps. I mean, I, I think that the insurrectionary, to the extent to which crime think is, is starting to take a post-insurrectionary attitude, there's something in here about the difference between what you're describing and an insurrectionary anarchism is that insurrectionary anarchism believes that ruptures right. are the places for anarchist activity and that a rupture is defined probably as something that the masses are doing already or an arena of struggle that the masses might not recognize yet, but once they do, they will realize how unjust it is. So to speak in the Bay Area context, everybody agrees that gentrification is this horrible thing. Right. Yeah, but I don't think that's any different than saying everyone secretly hates their boss and wants to lock him up and hold him hostage or something like that. Well, I guess there is a... um, 
uh, an exercise in here that is a pretty important one where the consequence of how much we hate our boss or of how much we hate gentrification is equally disempowering in both the modality of saying, what will I accomplish if I punch him? <laughs> or what will it, um, like right now in, in the context of gentrification, you know, what will I accomplish if I burn one building down? Mm-hmm. And and so they're trying to fill that, that gap between uh, the powerlessness of the individuated action and the lack of clarity of the mass action with sort of poetry. Mm-hmm. And and um uh and i and i guess the sad truth is is that i don't think the poetry is enough in this in this situation but that isn't because i think that their question is the most important question in other words like what they're trying to do is is as big as the world it's a very big thing that they're trying to accomplish and the reason it's impossible isn't from lack of poetry but it's because in general people might be okay with the world that is even though it's unfair because they don't nobody can imagine a world that's not unfair mm-hmm. in, a, in a similar or worse way mm-hmm. and so to distribute 200,000 of these to me is an, actually an incredible logistical effort and I was very much disappointed that there wasn't any conversation about that because my other question besides the one I was talking about in the contradiction of their tone would be to say what does it look like to try to speak to that many people? How did you end up coming to, you know, what were the metrics that you were using to try to, that you settled on this sort of language? And how do you think that, I mean, where is this actually being distributed? Because ostensibly you're trying to talk to the every person. How is the every person going to get in touch with this document? What did you, what were your goals in, in putting on one page one kind of statement that says the secret is the open secret is that we all have self-determination on the one page and then several pages later saying we are not discrete individuals and the tides of the cosmos surge through us which is an actual line in it and was this just some kind of dragnet where you were trying to use every kind of buzzword or every kind of uh good intention yeah every kind of good intention every kind of perspective of how someone might conceive of themselves and then just you know hope to pull in a whole lot of fish i mean to me the actual the the question of the questions of what are the tensions in anarchist media where ostensibly you're not trying to propagandize on the one hand but you are trying to spread the ideas on the other and you know you're you know that there's a tight right now a tiny tiny minority of people who more or less agree with you and yet you're trying to change the world these tensions are really interesting but there was no unfortunately conversation about it yeah maybe we'll do a future episode where we get into the text a little bit more in a critical way because the reading group that we're both a part of uh had a field day with the sort of assertions that were made and to change everything this has been episode number nine of the brilliant podcast i'm aragorn i'm Bellamy. and the unspoken magician behind the voices is roy burton you can find our website at www thebrilliant.org and um, we're on social media uh, mostly Facebook and um, thank you for joining us yeah and please continue to give us feedback we got our first uh, venomous critical hate filled response and we're definitely open to more